You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Lord, we do just pray over this time in your word and as we continue this uh, series on suffering, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would be the comforter that Paul says that you are. We know that uh, in this room there's just so many various trials that we've fallen into and uh, at the time it even seems without hope. Um, but Lord, we pray today, even as we just read, that, that you would give us hope. Give us hope, Lord. And I pray that that hope would be founded in what you have done and in what you are doing. We worship you and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, here's my little happy Mother's Day to you moms, too. I haven't. Although I did pick out the video, so a little, little, little representation of my sense of humor, I think. But uh, I'm sure all of you moms have some pretty good uh, stories of birth of your children. Uh, it is always interesting, a great topic of conversation uh, around the dinner table, you know, uh, uh, what uh, you guys went, you gals went through, what kind of pain you went through, what kind of meds that you were on, <laughs> and uh, how long of a labor you endured. Um, we recently had some friends of the family in Klamath Falls uh, who uh, the gal went into labor all of a sudden and uh, had to, you know, get in the car and on the way to the hospital and ended up uh, giving birth. Uh, in the hospital parking lot uh, with only her husband there to deliver the baby. So, you know, when they walked through the doors, he said, my wife's had a baby. And they kind of, yeah, you know, slowly start getting, you know, he's like, no, in the car, there's a baby popped out on the seat, you know. And so then they rushed out to, uh, to get the child. Uh, those of you that have cable TV, perhaps you've seen the show on TLC called I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. Uh, stories of gals who were either on their family vacation or out on camping trips or just hanging out in the living room uh, when all of a sudden they would get tingles in their stomachs, uh, cramps, uh, you know, in that region, and uh, intense back pains, uh, thinking that they've had some kind of stomach illness. They would often go into the bathroom, and after 10 agonizing minutes, the scene ends with them holding a baby in their hands, you know, on the campground bathroom cement floor, or, you know, walk, just all of a sudden walk out into the living room and the family didn't know there was a pregnancy and there's a gooey baby in mom's arms. <laughs> and so, uh, interesting that, you know, they've got a whole series on that. I mean, there's that many women who didn't know they were pregnant, but uh, it's funny, though, that the scriptures tell us that the world is going through a type of pregnancy. Uh, the world is going through a type of labor, only that the world knows it's pregnant. <laughs> the world knows that it's in pain. And as we read, as Aaron read, the world is actually groaning and screaming and agonizing. It's crying out in pain hoping for the labor to be over and for the joy to come. Some of the uh, research I did this week, uh, it's interesting, you, you sometimes research more than just Bible stories. <laughs> um, uh, this week I researched some of the top natural and deadly disasters that the world has ever seen. Um, in 1931, China had a series of floods where two and a half million people were killed. 
Peru in uh, 1970 saw an avalanche triggered by an earthquake, and this avalanche killed 20,000 people. Iran in 1972 had a blizzard that killed 4,000 people. I mean, just picture this, blizzards, 4,000 dead in the aftermath of it. Uh, In Asia, Europe, and Africa during the 1300s and clear up through the 1720s, they had the Black Death Plague where a hundred million people died of a plague. Uh, In 1900, uh, there was a smallpox epidemic where 300 million people died. In East Pakistan in the 70s, uh, there was a cyclone, which can be, you know, in either a hurricane or a tornado or both, where 500,000 people died. China seems to have some of the worst uh, statistics, as uh, there was an earthquake in, 50, in uh, 1556, so a long time ago, where 830,000 people died. There was a heat wave in Russia in 2010, where 56,000 people died. In a heat wave, hard to imagine, a bolt of lightning struck in Greece back in 1856, killing 4,000 people. Bolt of lightning. Uh, Cameroon saw a limnic eruption. Has anyone here ever heard of a limnic eruption? It's also referred to as a lake overturn. It's a rare type of natural disaster where carbon dioxide suddenly erupts from a deep underwater and it suffocates all wildlife, livestock, and humans. And Cameroon saw 2,000 people die in a lake eruption. The Antone Ranch had one a couple years ago and all the fish in the lake died. I guess it happens every now and then. That was a small scale. Just a few more things. I know I'm boring you with all of these high-scale tragedies, but uh, some of you remember the Peshtigo fire in Wisconsin. I bet the Joneses remember or have heard of it uh, from 1871 where 3,000 people died in a wildfire. So you just kind of research some of these natural disasters and you just see that the world is not currently in shalom. You know, the world is not currently in peace. It's not currently good. As we remember Genesis 1 and 2, you know, there was a, a short season in the history of people and planet where things were good. Not only was there paradise and things were all shalom, but we had communion with God and we walked with him in the cool of the day. That was up until our rebellion. That was up until we de-godded God and worshiped the created things rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And so Jesus says that one day all of this is going to be dealt with and done with. And once again, there will be peace. Once again, there will be shalom. And he says on the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, that all of these disasters and wildfires and tsunamis and earthquakes and avalanches on top of famine, plagues, wars, and rumors of wars, I mean, you name it, it's bad. It's going to increase and increase and increase like labor pains increase and increase and increase until finally there's a birth. Until finally there's a labor. 
And Jesus says, watch. Watch. These are the signs of the times. These are the beginning of the labor pains. And we see here in Romans, there's these labor pains going on. Root word there, pain. Our life is full of pain. Just kind of looking out in the audience, and you guys know last week I kind of went through the church directory and went through just what, what are our people going through. And just to know that in your lives, there's just hard stuff. Hard stuff. I mean, I can't judge you and your hard stuff or you and mine to know, gosh, is the death of a child worse than the death of a spouse or is the, the foreclosure of a home worse than a car accident or, you know, gosh, you know, it, it's just pain. It's just pain. It's part of the fall. It's part of the curse. It's all hard. And the question is, how can we have hope and joy when there's suffering all around us. And this is the third week that we're in this same section of Romans. And in the next week to come, we're going to be looking at the latter half of the chapter. So for roughly four weeks, that's the plan so far, we're going to be putting suffering in its place. We're going to be getting a biblical worldview of suffering in our life. And we're going to apply the hope of the gospel to what's going on globally and what's going on in our own lives. And we're going to see that there is joy in the midst of pain. There is joy in the midst of chains. Often when we're suffering physically and emotionally or even relationally, we feel alone and isolated. Anybody relate to that? You just feel like you're the only one going through it. Maybe you're suffering through some sin and you're just working repentance out and you just, you just feel like you're the only one that struggles with that sin, with that struggle. And, you know, we see here in Romans that it's just not the case that you're the only one going through it. No temptation has overcome you except that which is uh, common to man. God is faithful. He opens the door. He gives you the way of escape. But temptation and trials, it, they're a common thing, uh, even in this room. And you need to know today that you are not alone. And this text teaches us so clearly we are not alone. There's three different types of groaning mentioned here. And I wonder if you picked it up. As Aaron was reading, and we've read, this is our third reading through it in the last few weeks, a few different groanings. The word groaning is used also multiple times in the chapter, and it signifies those who are in pain or on the brink of death. Just a, a groan, a pain. You know, uh, picture a soldier on the battlefield who's been wounded and is crying out for a medic. You know, I've done a lot of studies. I've never been a soldier, never been in war, but it's always interested me to read on the subject and to just know that regardless of the age of the soldier, when he's wounded in battle and on the brink of death, the multitude of them cry out for their mothers. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> you know, the multitude of soldiers cry out for their moms uh, on the battlefield, groaning. Uh, multiple, uh, multiple, many of you have been through childbirth and you can just, or, or husbands who have sat by your wife in the childbirthing room, you just remember, you think of the groan and the pain and the labor. And Romans says there's three different types of these just groans and agonizing 
uh, taking place in the world. First of all, and uh, people make fun of the three-point sermon or the three-point outline, but we're given a three-point outline here in this section. So talk to the Apostle Paul about it in heaven if you don't like it. First of all, there's a global groaning. All right, there's a global groaning where all of creation is groaning and longing. There's a communal groaning where we're all groaning together as believers. And thirdly, there's a divine groaning where God himself is groaning. We groan, but it's not without hope, the chapter shows us. We have joy, but it's not flippantly. You know, some people are going through times of pain and they act as though they're not in pain. In the midst of suffer, suffer some Christians actually feel like they've got to look like they enjoy it. You know, someone dies or the diagnosis comes in and we paste the smile to our face and it's all good, you know. And there's tears welling up behind. She's like, man, let it out. You're suffering. You don't have to fake it. Groan, weep, mourn. We will, we will grieve and we will mourn with you. It's okay to mourn. Those that are mourned, they'll be comforted and they're blessed, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott said, oftentimes there's too much grinning and no groaning. It's okay to, to groan. But as you have a biblical perspective, the Lord will work the grinning into our groaning. They can be together in the midst of the trial. You know, we would be out of whack if we had no joy in the midst of suffering. If you're going through a trial and you're just bitter and vengeful and you're full of rage, you're, you're angry to your spouse, to your family, you're kicking things and punching holes in the wall, no joy whatsoever, then you're out of whack biblically. You need a biblical balance. That the Holy Spirit works joy out in the midst of your life, and yet you, you suffer, and, and you cry, and you weep, but you cry out to God, and you suffer with hope. It's different than the way the world suffers. It's different than the way the world grieves, as Paul says. We grieve, but not as those that don't have hope. <clears throat> and so... There's a context uh, to hope and help in this chapter. And so first of all, verses 19 through 22, the global suffering of creation. Let's read it. We see here creation is the theater where suffering and redemption occur. All of the, the universe is watching suffering and redemption occur. So verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is speaking of the whole of creation. This is talking about the universe groaning, human beings, animals, and plants, and so on. All of creation, not just people, they have an earnest expectation, and they eagerly wait for God's sons to be revealed. Literally, literally, the language here says that all of creation is standing on its tiptoes and straining its neck looking for the sons of God to be revealed. Okay, can you picture that? The plants and the animals. When's it going to happen? 
Hopefully the Adam's apple isn't stumbling anybody here. <clears throat> the, the streams, the fish habitats. All right, let's get this over with. When's redemption going to be fulfilled? The sons of God, they strain their necks. Christians, all right. And God himself, the Holy Spirit groans, waiting for it all to come to pass, for it all to be finished. They strain their neck. They stand on their tiptoes looking for the sons of God to walk in the fullness of what they've been prepared for. It's the strain of the kingdom of God where it's already but not yet. Okay, the kingdom of God already, yeah, there's things that are happening that it's God working in our midst. There's healing that's taking place, but there's healings that aren't taking place. People are being forgiven of their sin and guilt is being washed and cleansed out of them. And, you know, gosh, the kingdom, it's, it's taking place. Miracles are happening, but it's not all fully here yet. The already and not yet of the kingdom of God. Creation's looking for it. They have eager expectation. As Douglas Moo says, the eager expectation suggests the picture of a person craning his or her neck to see what's coming, doing the head stretch. When's it coming, Lord? When's it coming? When's this Isaiah 65, 17 going to take place, Lord? When you said, for behold, I create new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. When is that going to happen, Lord? The new heaven, the new earth, the beauty, the shalom, the garden of Eden. When's it going to happen, Lord? Verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So again, we're talking the universe. We're talking the stars. We're talking the sky. We're talking the, the ozone. We're talking the plant life. We're talking the soil. You know, we're talking the organisms and human beings. All of it was subjected to futility or uselessness. Perhaps your translation says frustration. Anyone here ever been frustrated? It's funny, my five-year-old boy is starting to use that word. Dad, it's just frustrating when it's my nap time and, and just the, it's not time to get up yet and you keep telling me to go back and get back in my bed and it's just frustrating, you know? I'm like, where'd you even learn that word? Well, son, creation was subjected to frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Thanks, Dad. Thanks. Creation was subjected to frustration or vanity. In Ecclesiastes, the wisest man that ever lived, who had 700 wives and 1,000 concubines or a thousand wives and 700 concubines. He screwed up a little bit, but he did have some wisdom. He wrote in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. He says, this is, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Worthlessness of worthlessness. All is vanity. 
What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with, filled with hearing. That which has been will always be, and what's done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. It's the frustration of a guy that's like, man, I worked day in, day out. The money's gone. I'm working again. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. I'm working again. I'm working again. I hear something new. It goes out of my ear. I see something in my eyes. It's out of my, oh, it's just vanity. It's all worthless, he says. The creation was subjected to this. Those of you that are big fans of Greek mythology, I know you're in here, might remember Sisyphus, who as punishment, he was a king who as punishment was to roll a heavy stone up a hill only to have it roll back down again. And then he'd roll it up and that was his punishment for the rest of eternity. That's what Sisyphus got to have. It's mythology, so don't worry. So who's responsible for this subjection to futility? Who's responsible? Adam. Eve. Yeah. Satan. It's their thing. We blame them. Who's responsible for this subjection? I'm going to throw a curveball at you. It was actually God. It was actually God who subjected the world to this. Of course, it's because of the fall, but because of his authority, because of his righteousness, he set forth a judicial decree on sin. He set forth a judicial decree on sin. And here's the day it happened. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After the fall, God confronts the man and the woman and the serpent. And he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall be, uh, bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of, you, out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so we see that the Lord is the judge who set forth this curse upon the world in his righteousness one man said the account of the fall is on a cosmic level all throughout the scripture. The responsibility and effects of the fall and consequences are laid at our doorsteps. 
Right there in Genesis 3, all of the consequences are laid out. You've got the pain of childbirth thrown in there. You've got the agony of labor and toil and uh, thistles and thorns. My backyard, we bought a house you know, a year and a half ago and it didn't have a backyard. And so you know, I went to put one in, gonna do a sprinkler system automatic. you know. Neighbor lets me borrow his rototiller. I find I've got the rockiest yard in all of central Oregon trying to trench through that. I thought my arms were going to fall off, you know, and uh, finally, you know, the, the sprinklers are in, the trenches are dug, sprinklers in, cover it back up, water's shooting out, Russell's running around in the mud, getting all wet and muddy and, you know, just loving life. Put the seed on it, put the fertilizer on it, put new topsoil on, wait, wait for the winter to just, you know, let that simmer a little bit, you know, and, and, uh, find that there's nothing but pigweeds and goat heads back there. <laughs> By the way, what's the deal with goat heads? All right? Klamath Falls guy here, Corvallis guy. Never seen a goat head till I moved to Prineville. I don't know what you guys did to tick God off in Genesis chapter 3. But it was bad. All right? Now, have you ever thought, what if flowers grew like weeds? Oh, no effort, just... You know, beautiful. And what if weeds grew like flowers, you know? Put effort into, you know, your weeds getting to grow. Please just grow so I can be like the other people. Just doesn't happen. Why? Because all of creation was subjected to futility and to frustration. Put that in your memory verse box, you know, for when you're working in the yard next time. Donald Barnhouse said... All of this God did in order to bring forth the lessons that all of his creatures could see, leaving the vain creation as an object lesson that show, uh, that show that there's no pain of blessing except in yieldedness to the will of the creator and that every departure from that will means death. Partially the, the, uh, the curse and the futility, it's a reminder to us of sin. And that every time we worship another God, every time we turn from Yahweh to worship and serve the created thing, there's going to be thistles. There's going to be pain. There's going to be death. There's going to be tragedy. Not just that there's suffering. But why is there suffering? It's a message from God to us. Every time we see, every time we toil, every time a woman is in birth, why is there suffering? Why is there this pain? This pain is here because we fell. C.S. Lewis said that suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Every time you suffer, whether it's a little tiny thing, a little tiny headache, a migraine headache, no matter what it might be, it's God's megaphone to a rebellious world that we've ratified the decisions of our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve. They were our, you know, federal representatives who made the choice for us. And we ratified their decision by every sin that we've ever committed. 
We've said, I agree with Adam, I'm an idol worshiper. I agree with Adam, I want this rather than God. Adam made the right decision, that's what I would have done. And when we suffer, God says, do you see that what you've done has caused so much pain? When you see the the news of the tsunami sweeping through Japan, people drowning, people being crushed, when you see the twin towers falling and crashing into New York City, when you see the news from the, the battlefields of soldiers dying, it's God's megaphone saying, sin is that bad. Your lust in your heart right now, that's how bad it is. You don't think it's very bad. You think it's a little white lie. That's how little it is. It's that bad, every sin. But you know what? You know what else the tragedies show us? Not only how bad sin is, but how bad God loved us or how greatly he loved us. You want to know how much I loved you? I loved you that much. That's how bad sin was. Now look at the cross. Now look at the suffering where a man who did not deserve it was executed in the most excruciating form possible, the most humiliating form possible. That's how bad your sin is. But that's how much I love you. Our suffering and God's suffering. That God took on flesh and that God subjected himself to futility in the hope that he'd redeem it all. Are you alone in your suffering? You are so not alone in your suffering. Not only are there people, not only is there creation, but God himself suffered. I'm jumping ahead in the outline a little bit. God himself suffered. God himself groaned. God himself cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, groaning from the cross. Suffering is a wake-up call to how horrifying sin is. But it's a wake-up call of how great God's love is and how much he endured to redeem the believer. Creation is groaning and longing for its restoration. And in Mark 16, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go out and preach the gospel to all creation. Has anybody read that and ever thought about that when you read Mark 16, the Great Commission? Go preach the gospel to all creation. What the what? (laughs) Just people, right? I mean, that's what you're talking. No, preach the gospel to your garden. Preach the gospel to your rusty old pickup truck. (laughs) Preach the gospel to all of creation. It's the new going green. Because you're preaching the gospel and you're saying, don't worry, little fella. One day, it'll all be green again. One day, God's going to restore. Little guy, there's a fallen condition. That's why you're growing up in my garden. And that's why I'm roundupping you. (laughs) 
But guess what else, little guy? One day, the creator is going to restore all things to himself. You know, we see the same problems that the world does. Pollution. We see the same things, and we can agree on a lot of the same things. But our solution is different. Our solution is different. Our solution is the revealing of the sons of God someday. And of course, what does that point to? The revealing of the Son of God. The revealing of the Son of God. So we're eagerly waiting. All creation is eagerly waiting. Outstretched neck on its tiptoes, waiting for the redemption, for all things to be remade. Creation is waiting for this day. Jeremiah 12, 4. How long will the land mourn? How long will the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. Then down in verse 11 of Jeremiah 12, they've made it desolate, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. Creation is waiting for the Isaiah 65, for the new heavens, the new earth, the redemption of the planet. When we sing the Christmas carol, joy to the world, the Lord has come, we're singing it to the world. Joy to the world, there's going to be redemption, the curse, the fall, the judicial decree. One day it'll be lifted. Verse 21, for creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So creation is in a state right now called the bondage of corruption or entropy or the second law of thermodynamics that every system goes from order to disorder. Everything is decaying. Everything is growing old. Everything is fading. Everything is getting rusty. It's the bondage of corruption. It goes completely against evolution, by the way. Okay? Second law of thermodynamics. Everything goes from order to disorder. The clock is winding down, even in our own bodies. We try to hide it. Some of you do pretty good at hiding it. But it's still happening. The clock is winding down. I may have found my first gray whisker this week. There's a debate in our home on if it was really blonde or gray. Okay, so bondage of corruption happening in Rory Rogers. It's a scary thing. Thanks to sin, there's this bondage. There is death, murder, corruption, pollution. Last week, somehow, I got on this kick where I was researching Chernobyl. Don't ask me why. Chernobyl, anybody know Chernobyl? Right? A Ukrainian nuclear meltdown. Okay, from the 80s. It was a, here's the words that are used on Wikipedia. A catastrophic nuclear accident that occurred on 26 April 1986 at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine. 
under the direct jurisdiction of the authorities in Moscow, an explosion and fire released large quantities of radioactive contamination into the atmosphere, which spread over much of Western Russia and Europe. Russia at the time is widely considered to have been the most nuclear power plant accident in, or the worst nuclear power plant accident in history, contaminating streams water, making it bitter. In fact, uh, the word wormwood in the book of Revelation in the Russian language is Chernobyl. Okay, so they read that in Revelation and they just melt. Okay, no, no joke, literally. Um, There's a forest of pine trees that is now called the Red Forest. It's just completely killed off by this plant. And there's a a city there around Chernobyl factory called, uh, see if I can say it right, uh, Pipriot, Pripyat. 50,000 people evacuated from this city, never to come back again. It is a ghost town that once held 50,000 people. Can you hear the wind just whipping across this nuclear wasteland? I mean, just swing sets and ferris wheels that are haven't been used in 30 years and do you think creation in the area of chernobyl is what's it gonna happen god bring it bring it on bring about redemption let's let's read about what this day will be like second peter 3 5 this they will fully forget That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly man. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So one day, this is just going to be changed. I mentioned last week, there's a debate whether it's just total evaporation of this planet, annihilation, and a new cre- a new heaven and a new earth in the full sense of the word, or whether there's this restoration of these things to its original state. There's brilliant men that love Jesus on both sides of the argument. But uh, all creation groans and labors for that day to take place. Read verse 22 with me here in, in Romans 8. For we know that all creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. There's that deep sound, that groaning expressing that pain or desire. They're groaning, creation groaning to be delivered. The birth pangs. 
And then it goes on in verse 23 where we see not only the creational groaning, but the communal groaning. Where verse 23 says, and not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Don't over-personalize your suffering. All of creation is suffering and subjected to pain, and you groan with it. Some people just cry out, why me? Why me? I get phone calls. Why me? Why me? Well, first of all, you're a sinner, okay? Second of all, it's not just you, okay? And uh, it's not just creation, but the creator has suffered too because of sin. So don't feel picked on. You know, why me can so quickly be changed to why did you redeem me from this? Really, that's the question on if God is fair. Instead of why me, why did you redeem me? We're not worthy. We're not worthy of this redemption. And it says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits back in the Old Testament, Exodus and Deuteronomy, were the pledge of the harvest. They knew that the harvest was on because of the first bundle of fruits that they got. In the same way, we have the Holy Spirit given to us, and he's the first fruits. And we know the harvest is on. We know the redemption is coming because he's given us the Holy Spirit, the seal, the guarantee of our salvation. He's the first fruits. And we ourselves groan within ourselves. Three, we, three reasons why we groan. We groan because we are all aware of the suffering and we long for it to come to an end. Secondly, we're aware of our own spiritual and moral lacking. That spiritually, physically, morally, we are weak, decay, and we're groaning. Thirdly, we're aware of our hunger for this completion. The foretaste makes us want the fulfillment of it all. And it says there that we groan for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. When this tent, as Paul says, is made into a building. You know, we'll put off the tent and put on the building. Verse 24 and 25, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now this hope here, it's not referring to a hesitating affirmation like, oh, I hope it happens, you know. Uh, but it's saying, no, we have this hope. It's going to happen. We just look to it. Like, I just, for some reason, when I read this, I think of whenever I order a package online, you know, something I'm like really looking forward to. And I know it's coming and it's going to be here any day. And I do the eager expectation looking out the window and every diesel engine out front. I'm like, might be the FedEx guy, you know, you know, looking out the window, eagerly wait, waiting for it with expectation. And then, you know, the knock at the door and he leaves it there on the porch and I throw the door open and oh, there it is, you know, bust it open, rip it open. There it is. And then I set it on the table. Well, shoot, <laughs> now I have it. You know, talk about the epitome of like covetousness and materialism, right? But, you know, in the same manner, we look to the redemption of all this. 
And we're just so excited. We don't see it. We've talked a lot in the past, past weeks about adoption, right? And how we've been adopted. And we're really looking for the fullness of the adoption to take place. Right now, we've got the guarantee of the adoption. We've got some privileges of the adoption. You know, it's like the orphan that's over there. And, you know, I think of the Smith family in Czechoslovakia. We've got the orphan sitting over there. They've heard they're going to be adopted. You know, they've met the parents one time. They've got the guarantee of their adoption, and they're just waiting for the parents to come get them. Just looking out the window, just kicking the soccer ball, and are they coming yet? Are they coming yet? Just this eager waiting with perseverance, with anticipation. As Philippians 3 says, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies that may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's even able to subdue all things to himself. This eager waiting for the transformation. John Stott said that we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience nor so patiently that we lose our expectation. It's a patient endurance. Not being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but being part of the mission that God's given us here and yet looking and straining and saying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. But as of now, there's no utopia on this side of God's transforming presence. There's gonna be suffering. There's gonna be pain. There's gonna be anguish. There's gonna be groaning. In closing, there's the divine groaning. In verses 26 and 27, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the word of God. The Holy Spirit who's indwelling the believer comes to our aid. He's the comforter. He's the prayer warrior for us. And you'll note that prayer is Trinitarian at heart. We pray to the Father by the Son in the Holy Spirit. There's this aid by the Holy Spirit that helps in the content of our prayers. In our suffering, we don't know how to pray. In our general prayers, we don't know how to pray. First John tells us that we pray anything according to his will and he'll answer it. Tim Keller said, there's two parts to your prayer. There's the core part and there's the stupid part. The core part is the I need help part of your prayer. And then so often the stupid part says, I think this is the solution to the problem, Lord. So here, let me go ahead and give you that and you, know, and you work that out. As Garth Brooks said, you're waiting for it. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Nobody? No one's a Garth Brooks fan here? Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. And even though he doesn't answer, don't mean he don't care. Nope. I saw you wearing a cowboy hat coming in here. You've got to know that song. Don't lie to me. You know, James chapter 4 verse 3 says that, you know what? We ask and we don't have because we ask amiss. 
that we could spend it on our pleasures. But God, by his grace, removes the stupid part of our prayers by the Holy Spirit. And he prays for us. Sometimes we don't, even, we don't even say anything. We don't even vocalize anything. There's times when you've been there and I've been there. We're mourning the death of a loved one. And all you can do is groan and weep and cry and be snotty. And you know what? As a believer, you can just know God's praying right now. God is praying. The Holy Spirit is praying. Later on in Romans 8, we're going to see Jesus is interceding. There is a prayer meeting going on. Trinitarian for you. For you. And so take comfort in that, that the Spirit doesn't condemn us in our sin, in our weakness, but he prays for us in that. And so the three different groanings that are going on within the suffering, but all of it is working towards redemption and glory. And Jesus himself suffered. As Hebrews chapter 2 says, in verse 8 and 9, he's put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all these things in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. But no, we do not see all things put under him. Now we don't see all things put under him. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Through his death, all things put under his feet. He's ruling and reigning in it. Closing in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We're all suffering, but we don't suffer alone. And mainly we don't suffer alone because Jesus suffered with us and before us. And as verse 17 says, we're gonna be glorified together with him. Let's pray. Let's have the worship team come on up. When we speak of the glory, we're going to be glorified. The sufferings, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Man, it's not that we could be pompous and arrogant and pat ourselves on the back in heaven. Yeah, we're glorified. Glory, we are the champions. But rather we see that all of our glory that only came through his enablement and power and forgiveness is gonna be shown to him. It's gonna be reflected to him. And our glory means his glory. And because he's glorified, will be glorified. Lord Jesus, there's suffering in this room that only you know. Only you know how to comfort. And would you do that right now? You hear the groanings. Physically, people are groaning in this room. My back, my leg, my eyes. The death of this loved one, this disease that's been diagnosed, Lord, there's outward groanings. And Lord, there's inward groanings. And even now, Lord, we thank you that your spirit who dwells within everyone who has been forgiven by the blood of the lamb, your spirit groans and prays for us. And, and you know what he's saying. 
Lord, this week, preach the gospel to our suffering. That even though we've fallen, even though there's decay and the bondage of corruption, Lord, you took on futility, coming as a man, lowly. And Lord, you died, but Lord, you didn't stay dead and your body didn't see corruption, but you rose in glory. That anyone who might believe in you, they also will see glory. Thank you, Lord, that you paid it all. You paved the way. And we want to worship you and glorify you. And if you're here today and you're not a child of God, you're not a son or a daughter of God, you've never placed your faith in Jesus in such a way that you're resting in the finished work of him on the cross, resting in his blood being shed and paying the price for your sins, that your blood doesn't need to be shed, resting in him for forgiveness, resting in him for redemption, resting in him for eternal life. I just want to invite you right now. Do you hear the Holy Spirit beckoning you to Jesus? I invite you as well to just yield and surrender your life to him as your Lord and as your savior. And just receive right now the forgiveness of sins. Just receive it. Just even say, just Lord, I receive that. You forgave me for that thing that I've been guilty of for so long. I receive forgiveness. I receive a cleansing of my conscience from wicked and dirty works to now I get to serve the living God. I receive right now redemption from suffering that I can now suffer with joy and be part of glory. It's like a little child. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.